I have a confession to make. The first time I can remember praying the Lord's Prayer outside of church was during a particularly stressful Duke-UNC basketball game. <laughs> I was nine or 10 years old watching the game with my dad, the Duke alum in our house. Duke was a few points behind with less than a minute to go. I couldn't watch. I left, I went to my own room, I covered my eyes and my ears, and I prayed the Lord's Prayer. The only prayer I knew by heart, I prayed it over and over and over again. Finally, I returned to the living room to discover that Duke had won the game. Of course, the most obvious conclusion, other than that God must be a Duke fan, was that my prayers had made the difference. But I have to admit that even as a child, I couldn't quite shake the feeling that maybe the outcome of the game didn't actually have as much to do with my fervent prayers as I wanted to believe. How and when and why do we pray? What do we pray for? What do we expect will happen when we pray? What does it look like to have our prayers answered? I hope it is a comfort to know that these questions we find so difficult to answer were questions that Jesus' followers struggled with, too. They got to see Jesus teach and heal, cast out demons, and calm raging storms. But the disciples also observe that Jesus is a man of prayer. Before meals, after them, at night, first thing in the morning, in the middle of the day, clearly Jesus knows something about prayer. And the disciples could only hope he might share this knowledge with them. So they ask him, throwing in a little peer pressure for good measure, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And for once, Jesus gives a simple, straightforward answer. When you pray, pray like this. Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive our sin, for we ourselves forgive everyone indebted to us and do not bring us to the time of trial. That's it. Compared to what faithful Jews were used to when it came to prayer, this prayer was a piece of cake. At that time, Jews prayed three times a day, at sunrise, at 3 p.m., and again at sunset. They always prayed standing up to demonstrate their reverence toward God. And the prayers consisted of a series of 18 prayers, always said in Hebrew, no matter the native language of the one praying. So this prayer Jesus offers his disciples was a breath of fresh air, short, easy to remember, and in their own language. But just when the disciples thought Jesus had offered them a simple and straightforward answer to their question, they undoubtedly discovered, 
as they began to pray this prayer, that it was far more complicated. With the words of this prayer and the parable that follows, Jesus teaches that prayer is all about relationship. Our relationship with God, who is closer to us than our very breath, and who is at the same time utterly other, utterly holy. It is also about our relationship with others, relationships in which we learn the complicated metrics of forgiveness and mercy, of desire and generosity. If even you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, Jesus tells them, how much more will God give to you? So, is God our intimate, loving parent who longs to fulfill our desires? Or is God utterly removed from us, uninterested in our trivial wishes? To such a question, Jesus would surely answer, yes. Yes, when you pray, come to God with expectant hope that God hears and responds. Yes, in your prayers, be open and vulnerable with the one who created you, knows you, and loves you completely. Yes, pray in a way that isn't transactional, but relational. For in prayer, relationship is created and nurtured when we reveal ourselves to God with all of our doubts and contradictions, and when we open ourselves to God, to the paradoxical one who is both profoundly intimate and wholly other. Years ago, Ed Bradley interviewed a family on 60 Minutes. The family consisted of a religiously devout mother, an almost painfully shy father, and their 10-year-old daughter, who was confined to a wheelchair by spina bifida. Each year of their child's life, this family made a pilgrimage to Lourdes in France, a place renowned for the physical healing that has occurred there. Bradley was giving this family a bit of a hard time. Clearly, he found them gullible and impressionable. At one point, he turned to the girl and asked her, when you pray, what do you pray for? Without hesitation, she answered, I pray that my father won't be so shy. It makes him terribly lonely. That stopped Bradley for a moment, but he quickly recovered and forged ahead, questioning the family's priorities and wisdom, suggesting it was a bit ridiculous for them to pay thousands of dollars each year to go to France when they had no miracle to show for it. But the mother, looking at her daughter, simply answered, Oh, Mr. Bradley, don't you get it? We already have our miracle. What do you think Ed Bradley expected that family to pray for? What would we expect them to pray for? Was their prayer answered? Even if the answer was that a young girl who could have easily focused on herself and her debilitating condition 
had the deep love and insight to pray not for herself, but for her father? Was not the miracle here a family praying the way they live, with faith and hope and love, and living the way they pray? We live as we pray. This prayer Jesus teaches us is not transactional, like putting money in a vending machine and choosing what we want to come down the chute. With this prayer, Jesus reminds us that prayer itself is transformational. It invites us to view the world not through the lens of what we want, but through our relationship with God and our relationships with each other. Gander is a town on the island of Newfoundland in Canada, and this small town of less than 10,000 people has a surprisingly large airport. Gander used to be the refueling stop for transatlantic flights, but once jet planes were created in the 1960s, most flights no longer needed to refuel, and most of the airport was no longer used. Until September 11, 2001. That day, the U.S. airspace was closed by the government, the first and only time this has ever happened. Our transportation secretary called his Canadian counterpart and asked if Canada would receive the flights that were already in the air on their way to America from Europe and Asia. Canada said yes. And within hours, 38 planes had landed in Gander. As word spread throughout the town, the citizens of Gander mobilized. The town only had 500 hotel rooms, so every available public space was converted into shelter. Toilet paper was collected, cots and air mattresses were dropped off, meals were planned. The bus drivers who were on strike called it off to transport the passengers. The ice hockey rink became a giant refrigerator to store perishable food. In the meantime, as government officials figured out what to do, the so-called plain people waited in their planes on the runway. In one case, passengers were on their plane for a total of 28 hours, including their original flight, before they were able to go off the planes and into town on the morning of September 12th. That day, more than 7,000 plain people arrived in Gander. 7,000 people from all over the world, disoriented, confused, and afraid. They were taken to hotels, to community centers, to churches, schools, private homes. Families got to stay together. Elderly passengers went into people's homes. Nurses and doctors were on duty. Everyone was given access to phones and email. School was canceled so that students could pitch in and help. Locals began inviting people to their homes for dinner, letting them stay the night cleaning their clothes, giving them anything they could ask for. One passenger remembers that the two small stores in town opened their doors and said, Take whatever you need, food, diapers, formula, toiletries, medicine. Prescriptions were filled at no cost. 
Local bakeries offered fresh bread. Food was prepared by residents and church members and brought to shelters. Every need was met, and every meal was a feast. Later, when some of the plain people were interviewed by the media, tears streamed down their faces as they told stories of the hospitality they received at the hands of strangers. Of course, if these passengers had been interviewed before they got off their respective planes on the Gander runway, they could have rattled off a long list of things they wanted. Their own beds, a hot meal, a stiff drink. The passengers may not have gotten the specifics of what they wanted or what they thought they wanted when they were stuck on those airplanes, but in so many ways, the people of Gander gave them even more. They gave them the reassurance that the world wasn't falling apart and that hatred and animosity would not have the last word. When Jesus speaks to his disciples about prayer, he invites us to treat prayer like the paradox it is, to pray with specificity and persistence, and at the same time to know that the answers we get are likely to be different than what we ask for. In his latest book, The Universal Christ, theologian Richard Rohr reminds us that this universe that we seek to exercise so much control over has existed for 13.6 billion years. Rohr suggests it would do us good to remember that God is not just bigger than we think God is. God is bigger than we can possibly conceive. The Lord's Prayer, this prayer Jesus says is enough for us to pray, invites us to be open and vulnerable, not just with God, but with one another. It invites us to make our requests known to God and to step into the mystery of the God to whom we pray. It invites us to remember and trust that the God who hears our prayers created the universe and each one of us. God knows us better than we know ourselves. God loves us and all the world before and beyond what we can conceive or imagine. So, when you pray, pray like this. Amen. As we consider all